It's the Quotidian. It's part two of my conversation with Ethan Kobayashi Shiro. Quotidian Podcast. I'm Bradley Dennis. This is part two of my conversation with Ethan Kobayashi Shia. We spoke in the last episode about how the perspectives afforded by actor training and gender are richly rewarding and constantly evolving salience landscape and how this perspective lends itself well to exaptation. We continue to explore these themes and to dive deeper into the work in this episode. This show is produced by carolinacommons.org, a company dedicated to exploring, teaching, and celebrating the creative energies of the human spirit. For more information, please visit the website. And I want to thank you for being here and continuing your support of this work. And if you'd like to offer more direct, read financial support, please go to patreon.com forward slash the Please enjoy the second half of my conversation with Ethan. Victor Turner and Richard Schechner really mm. wrestled with, which is mm. how, but they were really pointing at how do we re-ritualize the theater? How do we make this a transformative experience for everyone? Mm. I had a thought recently about almost, it still happens to me to this day, 
going to see a film in a theater, almost regardless of what it is, uh, coming out of that space and refusing to let go of the sensory world that I've just inhabited, that I'm now part of. I mean, I remember it especially as a kid, one believing the world that I just was just immersed in and mm. taking that with me mm. and trying to fly like Superman or you know, imagine being in a lightsaber duel with Darth Vader or whatever the context, but that that still happens to me watching a movie that I am now trying to speak in that dialect or I'm trying to move like that character or that I'm unwilling to let that go. And that what you're talking about is, in some sense, in my mind at least, is an invitation and an attempt to help the audience convey their that landscape, that sense of salience that they were experiencing beyond the confines of the theater. And to take it mm. and those ideas out into the world. Yes. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. That's very, very accurate. And that 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 would be the higher order that I'm that I'm thinking. There's an element there of that that it has to be transferable into daily life. So there's a uh, I have a, a good friend who's a playwright, Adam Sabsi, who wrote a a short one act uh, solo performance called The Hangtown Fry, in which the performer, Hangtown Fry is a recipe. It's an egg and oysters and some other stuff. And throughout the course of the performance, the actor cooks the recipe, makes mm. the dish, and then serves mm. it mm. to the audience. And so there's, there is a literal... I mean, there's, you're breaking the wall, number one, because it's very much like uh, you know, like swimming to Cambodia or Spalding Gray, where mm. we're now into, you know, postmodern kind of post-theater. Uh, post-dramatic stuff, yeah. Sorry, thank you. Post-dramatic theater paradigms here. But this idea that we can, we can forego the convention, we can set that aside, and we mm. can still, we can, it's the theater of the mind, right? It's now, okay, mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you a story and I'm not going to enact it here. I might give you some little sensory cues. There might be a screen behind me. I might have some sound effects that'll help you get into the mind frame or I'll cook this meal and, and serve it to mm -hmm. you so that you can, you, can you can feel the sense of anticipation. You can feel your your taste buds, you're, you're starting to salivate, you can smell, you can see there was one <laughs> performance where the woman cut herself so bad that she actually had to go to the hospital, get stitches, and then mm -hmm. came back and finished the show. And, and, you know, and so now you're part of that as well. Yeah. So I, there's something specific about, about that intention that is so divested from our normal conventions of the theatrical experience that it takes mm. it to a very different place but it also invites each person to think of themselves vis-a-vis -vis this theater of the mind as a performer because that's ultimately what we're talking about with tiamat yes the theater of self is 
you enact. This happens yeah. in your mind. I might be doing it on stage, but you are as important and pivotal to this conversation, to this uh, aesthetic event as I mm-hmm. am. I, mm-hmm. you know, I can't play the violin. You can't, but I can create this thing on stage that you can appreciate. And so there's this, this sense of, of giving the power back to the audience that I think is giving it, giving agency rather, let me say that giving agency to the audience in a way that is distinctly different from a passivity, a receptivity. Yeah. Yeah. I, first of all, Mm. I want to, I want to, um, slightly push back on the idea of, of giving agency. I think that it, that agency is not something necessarily to give, but I think it's cultivating agency in, in an audience. That's a good distinction. Cultivating. Yeah. Yeah. It's cultivating agency. Yeah. Because I think what's happening is like, you're, you're rightly. So you pointed out this wonderful, wonderful insight here, which is just as much as, um, the actor goes, there is a part of me sitting where the audience is, the audience is going, I'm there too, you know, in any good scenario, I think in any, in any good show, you feel that right. And not necessarily in that, I know your experience, but it's like, I'm with you, you know, in the relational sense. Mm-hmm. And so when the audience is with this person, it's, it sometimes feels to me like a little bit of a, like a little bit of a trick because let's say that um, we're watching, I don't know. Okay. Let's say we're watching Macbeth. Right. And so, you know, it's act five. Uh, Macbeth is about to destroy the world. Um, and he knows that he's going to fail. It's been told to him, right? And in the audience's idea, in the audience's mind, it's like, ooh, wow, I really like, I'm really, I'm like him. You know, it's kind of like that sensation of even just having a a, a small thread of that thought, like, oh, I'm I'm like that. I'm actually kind of like that, Mm -hmm. right? As an audience, Member, like usually when I see something like that, I want to dive into that. And this is just my experience of watching something. If I feel that bit of me that goes like, ooh, that's kind of like me, I'll allow it that to go, you know, and go, what would it be like to be Macbeth here? So that when Burnham Wood does arrive at my doorstep, it's hell to pay and yeah. it feels terrible, you know? And I think that's for me the proper meaning of the word catharsis. It's not that the show pulls the emotion out of you as you sit down there waiting for something to happen. It's that one is so engaged within it and participating in the process of catharsis. Catharsis is an active thing that, oh, this part of me that was Macbethian, right? Which might have those um, inclinations and will to power can be objectified through story as a vehicle through theater as the vehicle. And I can then look at that thing and say, ah, what's that about? And if I had a partner in the actors that were there, right? In fact, the actor who played Macbeth, right? Who goes, yeah, man, I had to wrestle with that thing for 10 weeks. 
<laughs> you know, great. Yeah, please yeah. share with me yes. <laughs> what that journey was like for you. You know, like that's that's what I mean by this Gnostic spectatorship proposal is that it needs to move itself. I think much more now than ever, we have the, the means to do that, right? Where we can engage in, in real conversation with audiences. And I love that you brought the post-dramatic thing and the theater of the mind, because there is no more wonderful example of that than Dungeons and Dragons, of which right. I'm, yeah, I'm also a dungeon master. So it's like, so we'll, I, I play a, I run a campaign based on the Mahabharata. And so there's a whole <laughs> spiritual level to this thing. Amazing. This is bloody complicated. Oh, I bet. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. But it was, uh, so oh, you, you would love this story. So like we were going through um, the burning of Kandava and then it's like kind of um, <laughs> one of the, so my, my, my party members um, meet up with Arjun. Right? And uh, my best friend plays a druid. Right. So he kind of like sees Arjun is like, ah, this guy that I kind of want to respect and I want to like, you know, I want to get into his good books, sort of, you know, they get into a clearing and they sit down and, you know, as a gesture of goodwill, um, my dear best friend uses mold earth on, um, on some, just a, a, a patch of soil in the clearing and he makes a bowl. Right. And he says, here, my king, use this. You can drink easier from it. Right. And then, you know, Arjun sort of come like looks at him. I, I had so much fun DMing this bit. I was like, Arjun looked at him and he's like, okay. And then my best friend goes like, yeah, it's, it's, it's my gift to you from the magical world in which I come from, right. As a traveler, this is for you as a gift. And Arjun looks at it and goes, yeah, well, we do the same thing. And he's like, what? <laughs> I, I have to wave my hand and green things come out. And then it's like, it makes this thing. It's like, what do you mean? And then Arjun literally bends down, takes some soil, molds a bowl out of it over the next five minutes, right? And then gives it back to him and says like, we have magic too. It's just slower. Yeah. Right. And like my player's mind just got just got bloody blown because it it takes away this kind of this level of um false conspiracy. Right. That's a around great way of like, oh, let's do this magic. Yeah, it's it's like, it's like the bells and whistles that as much as we have like bells and whistles in the form of, you know massive like stage lights with 16 colors that you can control and program meaning, wow, okay, yeah. yeah in the theater of the mind right for for this particular player the bells and whistles are this magic spell and this is what i mean by the transtextual thing that arjun as, like as playing arjun right i tell him that you know hey magic can be found anywhere it's fine mm -hmm. we just do it slower i saw that transplant itself into our daily life because we we run events sometimes and we'll build props out here in the back porch right and my best friend took like was having a lot of trouble with this with this concept that he was working on and he was having a hard time because everybody was busy didn't have much help right and so he had to get all of the raw materials and do it himself and then i was kind of expecting him to like be kind of 
upset about it, you know, because uh, he used he used to have done that. And then I went out to sit down and have a chat with him. And I asked him, "Hey, man, how are you doing? I'm sorry that I can't help. You know, I'm I'm also busy with my stuff." And he goes, "No, it's fine, man. Like we're still doing this kind of like crazy magical thing. In fact, I'm actually really enjoying it." And then he recounted this story to me mm. um, from D and D, and it's like, ah. Nice, ah, you know, <laughs> nice reconnection. Yeah, yeah. Because he said, like, dude, I have the money, I have the budget, I can just pay somebody to do it, but I wouldn't feel as good about you know this entire process. And that story taught me that. So, this touches on something that I wanted to discuss, which is the difference between an actor and a non-actor. <clears throat> which mm. as I wrote, I kind of recoiled in horror because I feel, you know, we're talking about, and we even, you even said this before we started recording is that everyone's an actor. Now everyone's on zoom. Everyone has phones with selfie cameras. And because of the prevalence of that, because of our idol idolizing movie actors, um, putting entertainment as, as so prominent in our sort of cultural hierarchy of, uh, of meaning. Mm. Each of us has this very vivid sense of, of projected self. And as you're talking here, <laughs> it reminded me of something that I wrote and I, I may have even heard somewhere, I don't want to take credit for it, but it was basically that artists aren't special kinds of people, but people are special kinds of artists. And mm. that this comes back to the very foundation of what this show represents is how people of all walks of life generate, transmit, and use creative energy in their life. Mm. I mean, I'm very fond of the, the Noam Chomsky quote that just the fact that people can communicate via spoken language implies a high degree of, of creative yeah. thought and literacy. Yes. That that to me implies a, a great deal of either hidden potential or uh, unseen resource, not that it's untapped, but that every single person has this innate capacity as mm. a living, breathing, divine, existential extension of, of the world, of the earth, of the cosmos, that when, what, what the action of acting really focuses on is diving down into every nuance of that creative energy and that anyone can do that. And so mm -hmm. I, you know, getting back to what Tiamat and what theater of self really purport to, or want to bring out mm -hmm. is that potentiality of mm -hmm. self-expression to oneself for oneself. It's not a performative gesture. 
Mm. It is, it is a, it is a revealing, it is a way of, it is that ecology of practice, right? But that mm-hmm. th- the moment that we think we have a special kind of magic that can create a bowl out of an incantation, right? Mm-hmm. The other person can reach down and grab a hunk of earth and create a bowl. Yeah. That it's a different process. Yes. But that that is ultimately what we're talking about here is how how we can use these tools to help other people afford this particular type of salience landscaping which mm. to my mind is is very nuanced is very and i want to avoid language that implies any sort of hierarchical layering Mm-hmm. Take your time. I'm. It, it really is an enchantment. It's about in. To me, that's the word that encapsulates this process: is a love yeah. of, of the sensate function of, of a. I don't want to even say intuitive function because it's there is certainly an intuition about it, Mm -hmm. but it really is an experiential, a facility it's, and everyone does that differently, right? There's no, whether you're doing Meyerhold or Stanislavski, you know, method or Lecoq or whatever, Mm. or, you know, there's all these pedagogies that are finding and giving articulate voice to certain aspects of the instrument. Mm, mm. But they can be applied, you know, if we're looking at the human body as the instrument of expression, as the instrument of perception, which ultimately we are, there's this great quote, quote by Andre Gregory about the strange thing about actors is that we are the instrument and it's up to us to decide if we want to be a banjo, if we want to be a Stradivarius, want to be a flute right mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and we may change depending on the demands of our environment de- depending on what it is what music needs to be played like that and that is so then it becomes a question of availability so i mm-hmm. want to return us if we can a little bit to about to tiamat and what the actual practice is and I want to hear your experience about this and mm. what is, what is this also kind of bridges the gap uh, around coaching, <clears throat> what it is that you hear, see, sense from your clients, from performers, from people who are engaging in this embodied ecology of practice you call Tiamat, mm. 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 how it learns from itself how it grows and where it's headed okay in 15 minutes <laughs> that's a lot if you told me 15 seconds i'd be pissing myself again okay. um okay so let me see if i can find a few things which might be helpful here um 
Okay. Maybe in a bit. All right. So uh, we've referenced Tiamat and, and Theodore Cell quite a lot. And I realized that the viewers don't really know what Tiamat is uh, up to this point. Maybe people have been thinking about it as a Mesopotamian mythical dragon, uh, which is kind of not kind of a coincidence, kind of not that. It, I was going to ask about the etymology of, of that. If it was from the Enuma Elish, <laughs> if it was Marduk related or what, but, and I can uh, give a, short, I can uh, give a yeah. preference at the big, uh, a preface uh -huh. at the beginning of the, the show to kind of give an overview if that's helpful. That's okay, but I think uh, I, I please do that. But also, um, so TMAT stands for the Integrative Approach and Methodology of Active Transformation. So we just shorted it. But the coincidence, the coincidence is not uh, is not purely coincidence. You know, t the idea behind TMAT or the mythical idea of TMAT as this you know this chaotic function for me is vital it's absolutely vital because creativity is the way that we have grown and complexified our world and our instrument mm -hmm. rightly so you know um andre gregory's quote is very very on point to that extent so i think something that's i found that i found lacking in my time in school was that you know we were taught a lot of things i was taught lecoq i was taught um, Michael Chekhov, Linklater, Stanislavski, uh, yeah, primarily those those things. Um, but there was uh, there was no there was no pedagogical support um, in terms of a framework of how to bring those things together. Mm -hmm. It became very much like, oh well, you you just you you get it, or you have to connect those dots. Yeah. I'm like, why do I have to connect those dots? You know, I could learn two disparate things, right? But if I don't have this missing piece or I don't have the way to build this missing piece for myself, they are always going to remain disparate. And if they are going to remain disparate, then that's a lot more effort required to deconstruct them, break them apart, try and put them together, try and, you know, spend a lot more time turning them into something that I can truly call my own, whatever that is. And so TMS is attempting to kind of fill that gap and the cognitive science is helping um, in that regard of building a method that helps to integrate everything. It's a method of integration only. Yeah. It, it, could, it can work as, a, as a, um, an acting practice in itself. Uh, it definitely does for me. I don't know if it if other directors will will find it useful, um, although <laughs> all the actors who have worked with other directors have all gone, yeah, I have very very little problems in rehearsal now, um, because TMF functions on our cognition itself, and I don't just mean our cognition located only in the mind. Uh, I, I don't just mean the thinking function. I also am talking about the somatic dimension, the yes. metacognitive dimension, um the transjective rationality dimension, which is how we interact with other people, you know, and in that relational level, 
get higher order states or, or achieve higher order states and transcend the self. And then we have um, the last one, which is an active imaginality. It used to be called active imagination and now I've swapped it around, right? It's an active imaginality. Um, and this is leaning into Coban's work around the, the difference between imaginal and the imagination, right? Yes. So coming back into salience landscaping. So um, when I say, okay, let's try and let's try and work on the core mechanics that allow performance to be possible, right? Because now more so than ever, we need that because we all have cameras and we can all be aware of being observed by one person, by many people whatsoever. And I wrote this in a, in a paper that I wrote called a dog not named fluffy, where if you encounter a dog, that is, you know, really like boisterous and excited and it's, you know, it's leaping up on you and everything. You can have that experience with a dog, right? And at the same time, which you can do now that you couldn't do 50 years ago, you can go, oh, honey, here, take my phone, take a picture of this. This is great. It'll look good on the gram. And in a, in a funny way, it doesn't destroy this experience. Right. This thing is still very salient. The dog is still fantastic, right? It's like you do that. But there's a part of everybody's brain that then goes, I can take a selfie. I can have somebody to go take a look at it, right? We're portioning that out. Mm -hmm. In that sense, everybody is an actor. Yes, 100%. Because we're using those same mechanics. Except that I, actors should know how to use that mechanic better. <laughs> um, because let's face it, actors are also facing a mental health crisis. And I say that they have quite a big brunt of it. Yes. You know? Um, and of course, it's been a hundred years plus plus at this point, whereby, you know, there are many different versions of Stanislavski now. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about the Strasbourg. I'm not just talking about Uta Hagen. I'm not, I, I'm talking about individual teachers all have their own take. And it's as recent as like viewpoints. There are many different kinds of viewpoints and they differ with each practitioner, you know? So... Yeah. Why is it why is it doing that and and diversifying out and the art and the artists are trying to bring that back in? You know? And where if we just had one integrative approach that is rooted in cognition in the cognitive science, that's rooted in the way that we are designed to work, then it's kind of like those parts can fit a little bit better together. No. Mm -hmm. Maybe we just look at the body. Never mind the Lecoq body. Never mind the neutral body. Never mind the psychological gesture body. Leave that aside. Look at the body. What's it telling you? What are you feeling inside? Okay, maybe if, like I, I did this with John also, right? So it's like, look, the, the, way, the, way, that you're, the way that you're sitting, right? So if I'm here, it helps that we're both bald, right? Nice. If, if I kind of smile, if I smile the way you do, and I want to try and get your gaze a little bit. Well, the camera's mirrored, so it's the right side. It's the right eye that does that. And to, to kind of bring into play here this ritual balance 
that I'm talking about. I can take your form. I can adopt your form. And at the same time, I want to observe how that's changing how I'm experiencing this relationship. Could you just say um, there once was a rat named Arthur? There once was a rat named Arthur. There once was a rat named Arthur. You're right. So your throat, your, your, your soft palate is lifted. Mm-hmm. There once was right. So if I just pay attention to all of these things that are happening interceptively, proprioceptively with the body, can I, like you did, walking, walking behind that person on the street and go, okay, well, what's their way of being? What's that like? Maybe I'll know how to be a father a little bit. You know, maybe I'll know a little bit about what it's like to live in North Carolina. You know, maybe I'll know what it's like to, to see the world in the way that you do. Hmm. And this is an exercise that we do. Yeah. There is an intuitive leap here, which is crucial, Mm. which is I have to trust that when I inhabit your frame of reference as closely as I can and with as articulate a sense as possible, that the, the information that I receive from that is true. That it is that I have to trust my basic humanness and your basic humanness. That that is the commonality, that's the substrate of our our work. That that is really, that it gets down to the spiritual dimension of it. You see, I would say that no matter what it is, and this is the extension of good faith, is that all of this is human. Yeah. All of it, right? So in that sense, even if there is like some kind of dissonance or whatever, that dissonance is part of the human being that I'm trying to to embody, the identity that I'm trying to take on, right? Um, even if it was a character. And this is why I bloody respect actors, man. Because they have to not just be priest and sacrificial lamb at the same time Mm. is that we've killed the priest and the lamb still has to die. Mm. So they have to make that identity from scratch. We found the material, whatever they have, and they got to try and piece that together from whatever they've learned and hopefully have some fluency in the technique to craft this identity, including parts of themselves, decenter from themselves and adopt this identity and its respective salience landscape. It's like if you were playing a drunk and there was an alcohol bottle on stage and that thing is not salient to you, even in just like sidelined, side-eyed like acknowledgement and deliberate avoidance of said alcohol bottle, if it's just not within your salience landscaping, it's not believable, you know, um, in that same way, I think the, the, the post-dramatic stuff, it still applies, except that it's, sim- it's somewhat potentially maybe a little bit easier because you don't have to construct an identity um, yeah. in the form of another human being. You might create an abstract salience landscape. 
right? So what is it to purely be death or um, what is it to be uh, water only? You know, what's the Sadian's landscape of water? <laughs> I don't know, man. Go, go figure it out. And I hope Stanislavski helps you with that. Um, but it is possible very, very much to do and as complex as it is. So I feel like I've, I feel like I've completely, wow, wait, hang on. There's, there's a version of you that's in my head that is currently needing to. <laughs> I was amazed at off. how you're, uh, you were able to adopt and bring in even vocal acuity that I could hear very clearly in just adopting that physicality. It was impressive. Very neat. <laughs> but, the, you know, I want to point and touch on something that you just said, which is, yeah. you know, what is it like to be water? We've done the exercises where you try a character mm. who, who moves like water or who moves like a rat mm. or who has a dragon's tail, an imaginary dragon's tail behind him that, it, that influences how we bring that character to life on stage. And that's, a completely hidden world from from the audience like they have mm. no way of knowing that what is actually informing my movement is the element of water and a giant dinosaur tail that i'm dragging through this scene mm -hmm. but as soon as you give or make them aware make someone aware of the potential to inhabit those things for themselves in everyday life. And I'm thinking very much of Irving Goffman's work here, the mm -hmm. presentation of self in everyday life, that mm -hmm. if you have, if you are an, an argumentative, disagreeable personality and you're working on that, mm. inhabiting water and inhabiting a, a great blue heron in those moments and allowing that to manifest inside you as an image that you are going to now step into. Mm. It's the exact same thing, right? But that's, I, mm, to me, I'm not that so is, sure about that, but yeah, that is, that, on, sorry, is sorry. that is the technology that I think I want to try to help people get is the ability, not only to be minutely and directly involved and related to their own salience landscaping, but to mm. generate through this sort of imaginal in the yes, Corban yes. sense, in the trans, uh, transcendent function sense mm -hmm. of actual images I, that are, I am generating from my own mm. internal landscape that are salient to me now that will transport me to types of behavior, types of perspectival knowing that I aspire toward. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, that makes sense. So I, I just want to make sure that like we are not misunderstood here in a sense that there is an element of the symbolic object in this sense um, that if it is uh, too abstract, if it's too far abstracted, it becomes difficult to get at that that um how do i say this transformative mm, distance is is hard to cover that chasm so yes. i'll give you an example right yeah. if you tell three different people right who are all argumentative 
right, to embody water. Maybe one out of three of them will give you a violent storm. You know, the other person might give you a placid lake. The third person might give you a cup from which he drinks from and is bloody empty now. You know, so there is something in this sense of um, the idea of internalizing the sage, right? That when it is another human being, first of all, as we, as we found out in just that, that little um, party trick <laughs> idea is that there is a human being there and there is something which I can extend a, a good degree of good faith to. And there is also trust from the other person, in this case, you, that I'm not doing it to ridicule you. Right. It's I'm taking it very seriously. I'm trying to capture all the minute details, even to down to the position of your soft palate and the placement of your voice, you know? Is there is a certain degree, and I don't mean this word lightly, there is a degree of honor oh, that absolutely. has to be there. There's which I the coaching. Yeah, which I cannot apply to bloody water. Mm -hmm. You know? And this means that when it's some when it is something that is too far abstracted, then the, the cognition is really complex and, and adaptive. So it can mar that object in ways which are not helpful. And we've seen this. Um, move into things like spiritual bypassing hmm. you know the, 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 the pantheons of the world are vast and so are their deviations and so when we, when we are clear very very clear about okay what is, the, what is this metaphysical symbol that I'm trying to embody okay can but how much of that is um how much of that is left with a lot of space? I'll just put it that way, right? Mm. Space for abstraction that may or may not be hijacked by the kind of processes that one already is suffering under. And that's why sages are important. And I don't mean sages as in like, you know, wise people that you can find on Google. I'm talking about like Buddha is a sage, Socrates, right? Yeah. In, in John's case, right? In Jesus of Nazareth. Um, even like, you know, Marcus Aurelius, for example, right? They're still abstract to a certain extent, you know? But as you rightly pointed out, speech is highly complex and we have the written word to oh, add one more layer to this text. So there is a symbolic image that's part of the text, right? To come back into the text, subtext context thing, right? So the text is comprised of this symbolic image. It has written text below it, right? If you can add an element of music to it as well, right? If you add a degree of, uh, of somatic practice to it, right? Like um, I have a statue of Buddha here. And so I will, I will meditate in that position right? Really with the hands, everything is very Lecoquian way of doing things, mm. right? So you have, you have these, you have these four things. Okay. Then there's the imaginal enactment of that, right? Now we have a multi-dimensional symbol, multi-dimensional image, not just a visual image from which one can enter into. And you know, you hear this with actors all the time. They are up They'll, have, they'll meet directors who, you know, I once got a note from a director that said, like, um, you got to find the character's voice. 
And it's like, I never really understood what that meant. Like she did mean it literally as in like, you have to find the vocal timbre of this character's voice, but there's, yeah. there's, there's a certain precision to that, right? So it's not just like, I see this picture, I pray to it, I'm done. It's, it's also more than that. It's, it's using your entire immanent faculty with honor, with good faith to construct this thing with precision so that you can take it on, not to be in it in perpetuity in, and unconsciousness for all of life, but to put it on for a while, take it off, put it in dialectic with what currently exists and then see what is disclosed from there. That's the whole Lexio Divina idea. It's mm -hmm. just that you do it with the body, right? You do it with all of the faculties available to you. And that's what I would argue is an actual symbolic existential relationship. You know? And when you have practices, um, yeah, TMF very explicitly moves in that direction. Um, but all other acting techniques do that also. So, okay, what do we want to do with this, right? Like that question right. of what do you want to do with theater or self? What do, you want to, what do I want to do with Tiamat? It's like, I'm more than happy for people to just like email me and, and we can do some we can do some one-to-one -one coaching work or if group classes are available in your area, which I hope we can do in, in with Carolina Commons at some point, yes. right? Then, okay, let's see if I can make this bloody individual. And that's where the coaching bit comes in because it's so bespoke. It's who are you? How do you function? How do you yeah. work? What's difficult for you? If, if your vocal faculty is low resolution, like so you know, you might not have the same quality of, of, of definition in terms of being able to isolate certain parts of it. Okay, great. Teach you. Let's try and learn that. Right? Mm -hmm. Movement. Okay, try. Do that. But here's the problem. What if somebody doesn't talk? What if they're, they're sedentary and they don't move? Yes. What if they say, I'm not creative, I have no imagination? Yes. Right? Then what do you do? Well, you first have to adjust like really to a place of deep, compassionate understanding, I think. And this is my philosophy as a coach, right? Part of my inactive philosophy as a coach. It's like, I want to figure out how you're perceiving the world. If I can figure out how you're perceiving the world, I can see things as you are. So sometimes I'll... I'll I'll like embody them and they might not know I'm doing that, but I'm trying. Or sometimes I'll explicitly tell them that I'm doing that. If I can figure out how you're perceiving the world, I can maybe start to figure out what motivates you. If I can figure out what motivates you, then I can figure out how you're emotive or what, what, um, what affects you, right? So in the sense of the affective dimension. And then I can figure out how You'd how you'd like to behave or what behaviors come out of that. And then we work backwards. Say, okay, great. Let's change the behavior. So instead of, you know, one of my clients maybe like go silent and, you know, doesn't really talk very much. He's now recently gotten into the habit of recognizing when he's silent to get up and move wildly around. Mm. And he goes, it changes the way I see things. Great. Because then it comes back to the perception again, right? The behavior affects the next set of perceptual inputs. Yeah. And then we're on that train. 
all the time. To me, That's how you transform. Yeah. It occurs to me while you're saying that, especially when we have compassion for people who either are differently abled, who may not have a literal voice. Mm. It occurs to me that this is why many meditative practices, and I would guess even your practice in Tiamat, starts with breath. Mm -hmm. That there's everything starts with focus of breath. All movement originates from breath. Inspiration, literal definition of the etymology, starts yes. from breath. Hearing you talk about your friend and his, when he gets silent, he realizes he has to move. It reminds me of a story when I was working with my theater company. I'm the youngest member of this company. They're all Lecoq-trained, amazing people they we would do these elaborate um elaborate improvisations we're creating content and then we would get down we would write and we would just idea jam and i would be amazed at how brilliant these people were and i would get nothing brain mm. foggy <clears throat> sitting mm. there what is that how can these people be so much more creative than i am and one day in rehearsal, out of pure frustration, I got up and I started pacing. Mm -hmm. The moment that I did that, the ideas started coming and more and more. Yeah. And at that moment, I realized, oh, that's where I have to go in order to enact, in order to connect to, those, yeah. to that inspiration. I literally have to breathe with my whole body. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think we have a lot more conversations to have <laughs> oh, yeah. around this, around this work, around this, these things. So yeah, we've only just laid like the macro umbrella. Yes, yes we haven't Part gotten one. deep into the weeds yet. Part one. <laughs> Part one of 50. We're going to do our own making sense of the theater crisis. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, Ethan. Yeah. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to hang out and to share your ideas. Thank you for your gift. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. It's a bit of absolute pleasure to be with you. I want to be with you more, again, many times over. <laughs> so thank you very much for having me, brother. Likewise, we'll be in touch. ありがとうございます。ありがとう。